0: Well, when a group of people are going somewhere in a car, you'll often have them rush the car and somebody's yelling out shotgun. Has that come? You ever been in that group? And if you're bored this afternoon, you can go home and Google the rules for shotgun. There are actually several rules that dictate uh, who gets that coveted front seat in a car. But one overriding rule is that even if a person plants themselves in the front seat, the driver can shoot them down and say, you're going to have to move because there's somebody more important than you in the car. My kids have experienced this as they've jumped in the front seat, and I've said, uh, no, that's mom's seat. Uh, you get to move to the back. Now, when that happens, it's, it's a humbling experience. And if you've ever found yourself there, not only are you uh, kind of being taken down a peg in front of everybody, but you often find you get the worst seat in the car because everybody else has already piled in and taken the better seats, and so you end up all the way in the back. Now, as we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 14, we're going to see that Jesus gives us a simple rule when it comes to calling shotgun, and it's don't do it. Now, if you're wondering why I'm talking about this in Luke chapter 14, what we're going to find is that Jesus really isn't concerned so much about where we sit. This is more of a hard issue as this passage deals with a parable of pride. And as people, we have a natural tendency to want the best seats, don't we? I mean, because with those front row seats uh, are, are, are an unobstructed view. It's a, it's a place of, uh, of honor. How many of you have ever gotten to go uh, to uh, a concert and sit in a skybox? Well, me, me either. Well, there's a few hands. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you go to a restaurant, you want that table with a view. You want that place right behind home plate. The 50-yard line seats would be great. Uh, at a concert, getting, getting in the front row comes not just with an unobstructed view, but there's also bragging rights. Because you get to tell people, hey, I was on the front row. I was courtside uh, at the game. And what happens is uh, I love coming to church because you all are such servants. You know, people come in and they fill in the back rows first <laughs> because they say, we want to serve others. We want to keep those prime front row seats for the guests or those who are coming in late. So y'all are such servants when when you do that. Now, yeah, I know, we're kidding about that. But as, as Jesus tells this parable, as I said, he's not concerned about where we sit. What he's really trying to get to is the heart issue, the heart condition of those that he's speaking with, as we'll see today by looking at Luke chapter 14. He begins in verses 1 through 6 by saying... And it came about when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, that they were watching him closely. And here in front of him was a certain man suffering with dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and he healed him and he sent the man away. And he said to them, which of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. Now, we're told that Jesus is invited into the home of a Pharisee to eat bread. And in that day and age, culture dictated that sitting down to a meal with somebody was something that was a sign of great intimacy. You just didn't have people over who were not friends or family. This, this was a sign of intimacy. It's why the Jews and the Gentiles would not break bread together. But Jesus knows as he's invited here, it's, it's neither because he nor this man that is mentioned in, the, in this passage are there for fellowship. They're not there as the guests of honor. In fact, they're there simply to be the main course for the meal. This meal, we're told, is taking place in the house of a Pharisee. And the, the Greek word used here for the Pharisee is an archon, And what that means is he's not just your run-of-the-mill religious leader. This, this guy is a leader of leaders. He's part of the Sanhedrin. He sits on the Jerusalem Supreme Court, so to speak. The Sanhedrin was the group of the highest religious leaders. And we're going to see in a few chapters later in Luke uh, that they will be the ones who will declare Jesus guilty Of death. You see, there are other leaders and lawyers that are there, and among them is this man who clearly doesn't belong. Have you ever sung that song, One of These Things Just Doesn't Belong? And it's this man because he's diseased, he has this this illness, this disease called dropsy. Now, Luke, you'll remember, is a medical doctor, so he gives us lots of details about conditions. And dropsy is a water condition. It's where your body retains water. It swells, and it affects all kinds of things. And so uh, this is part of what's happening. And this guy is there uh, not because the Pharisees wanted him in the home. They, their theology, remember, said if you, were, if you were sick or diseased or if you were dirt poor, it was God's judgment showing that you were this, you know, really bad sinner, and so this is not a guy who would normally be sitting around a table like this. But he's there to be bait in this trap. And the trap is to see whether or not Jesus will heal on the Sabbath. Now, as you read through the Bible, you find that there were lots of confrontations with religious leaders and Jesus. And in terms of him doing things on the Sabbath, there are six other times where they get mad about what Jesus did. Five of them are related to him healing somebody on the Sabbath. The other was where his disciples were walking along and rubbing grain between their fingers so they could could eat it. And the Pharisees said, well, they're working, they're harvesting on the Sabbath. It's not that Jesus disrespected the Sabbath. Remember, he tells us in the Bible that he came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it. He had a very high view of the Sabbath. One of the Ten Commandments is remember to keep the Sabbath day holy. But well, what Jesus tells us about the Sabbath in Mark 2.27 is the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. But the Pharisees had put in place all kinds of rules that made the Sabbath all about following what they said. They, they had all kinds of rules like you could only walk a certain amount of distance on the Sabbath. That's why we'll read in the Bible and it was a Sabbath day journey. They said you couldn't carry something that weighed more than a few dried figs or ounces And so they they had these various rules that they would get mad when they saw them violated. Like in John chapter 5, there was a man that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He had been paralyzed. And this guy picks up his mat, and he's walking down the road. And when the Pharisees see that he's been healed, they don't say, wow, what a great miracle. What happened? They say, what are you doing carrying your mat on the Sabbath?" It's what we saw in Luke 13 where the woman in the synagogue who was healed that had been bent over for 18 years, the synagogue official said you shouldn't be healed on the Sabbath. Instead of seeing and rejoicing at these miracles, they were mad that their rules are violated. And as Christians, we need to make sure that we are those who uphold God's truth and not just our traditions. I'm thankful that Wayside is, is not a church where we deal with a lot of legalistic things like this. But in your own personal life, I want you to think about those times where you get upset about something you see done in church or what other Christians are doing. And ask yourself, is it because it's violating your preferences or is it one of those core principles that God says need to be upheld? As we look here, there, there are these, these two groups are about to clash, Jesus and the Pharisees again. Remember, there are lawyers sitting there, they're the religious leaders. So Jesus asked them a question. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And in Luke 14, 4, we're told, but they kept silent. So Jesus reaches out, he takes hold of the man, and he heals him and sends him away. Now, if you had been there, would, you, would your response have been to be mad, or would you have said, what a wonderful miracle I just saw? Their response is to get mad and to say, we need to kill him. Now, this is something we've already seen. They're, they're plotting earlier. Last time in Luke 13, 31, we saw where the, another confrontation took place. They, they told Jesus, you need to get out of here because Herod's trying to kill you. And we talked about how they themselves were trying to kill Christ. And so as, as we're reading here and they get mad, uh, I want you to remember who Jesus is sitting in front of. I told you these are the religious leaders. I told you the archon, this Sanhedrin official is there. Jesus knows in just a few weeks, actually just over a week, he's going to be standing in front of their kangaroo court. He's going to be there and it's these very people who will be passing judgment on him. Now, if that had been you and you knew what was coming, would you have taken a page out of the book, how to win friends and influence enemies? Would you have said the very last thing I want to do is make these guys mad? Jesus doesn't worry about that. He says, the book I'm working off of, the page that is important to me, is what does God say? And so he demonstrates God's mercy. He demonstrates God's uh, miraculous power. Jesus knows he's going to die. And he's not going to die because Herod the king wants to kill him. He's not going to die because the Pharisees are going to say that he's worthy of death. He's going to die because God's plan was for him to go to the cross to be the payment of our sins, to pay that penalty of death we owe. It's why Romans 3 Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so as Jesus is in front of these, group, these people, he, he reaches out not worrying about what the world says, Just as we as believers don't need to worry about what the world says, we need to follow God's word and he heals the man. Now it says he sends the guy away. And the Pharisees are more than happy to get this guy out of the house. They didn't want him there to begin with. He was just bait in the trap that has now been sprung. But those who are caught in the trap are actually the religious leaders as we see in verse 5. Because Jesus turns to them and he turns the table. And he says, which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath? Do you remember what the disease of dropsy is? It's a water disease. So Jesus gives this illustration of somebody who's trapped in water. And he says, here was a man created in the image of God who's trapped by water. And he says, you would go and rescue an animal. You would go and save your own son, but you're you're upset that I released a man who's been trapped in water on the Sabbath. And he says, you guys are hypocrites. Verse six tells us they could make no reply to this. Now, Jesus says, while we're dealing with this problem of your heart, let's drill down deeper and get to the core problem, which is pride. Look at verses seven through 11. Jesus says, while you've been watching me, guess what? I've been watching you, and this is what I've seen. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. He says, when you were invited by somebody to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both shall come and say to you, give place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. So when the one who has been invited to you comes, and he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you'll have honor in the sight of all those who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so Jesus paints this picture of a wedding feast. Many of you have been uh, to banquets, you know, the reception, if it's a sit-down dinner or if you're part of the bridal party and you're there at the rehearsal dinner the day before and you know that there's a head table and there's a seating order. And so Jesus is using this image of a, of a banquet, a wedding feast. And he says it's this big sit-down affair. Now, when I say sit-down affair, it's actually a lay-down affair. Uh, here's a picture from a time I was in Akhtau, Kazakhstan, and you see in the Middle Eastern cultures, they don't have tables. They have a mat on the floor, and uh, sometimes a very low table, if that. And the, the place of honor is to the right. This is actually the mayor of Akhtau, and I'm, I'm there in his home. And so you would have this, this seating order, and you notice that you lay down like sardines. When he's through entertaining us, he'll, he'll put his feet behind my head. His head will be in front of the guy you see over there on the other side. And so as you're, you're in this seating situation, if you're, you're there, he says if you come and you take uh, a place of honor that you shouldn't and you have to move, it's not like you just being kind of inconspicuous and scooting over to an empty chair. You have to actually stand up in front of everybody, and you have to move down the line. And there's this domino effect that can take place. Now... If you've been to one of these big banquet-type seatings, you know there's often a a placard that tells you, well, here's where you sit, or they'll have a seating chart. But if this were an open seating arrangement and you were just supposed to kind of come and and figure out where you thought you belonged in terms of importance, remember who we're talking about here. He he says this is a a group of the religious leaders, and he, he talks in other places in the Bible where they love to take the places of honor. They were the religious leaders who wherever they went, they were often given uh, the place of honor and a thing. So what do you do when you have a, a room full of religious leaders where it's the proverbial, too many chiefs and not enough Indians? These guys all thought they deserved the place of honor. And so they come and they fill in, they sit down. And then just like in our day, people like to show up fashionably late to make this big entrance. And one of the higher ups comes in after you've already taken a place And the host says, well, I can't let this dishonor happen, so you're going to have to get up and move down. Now, as you stand up, you turn to the person in the next uh, sardine slot, and you say, hey, move over. And the guy goes, no, I'm I'm as important as you. You move down another. And so you find yourself literally going person to person to person. And, And everybody's going, keep going, keep going. And this is where Jesus says you move literally from one of the top places all the way to the bottom. Now do you remember where the guy who had dropsy was seated? It said he was across from Jesus. So if Jesus is at the top place of honor as the invited guest to the right of his host, that means this guy with dropsy, the disease guy was at the very end of the seating. He's looking across at him. And so as this is taking place, Jesus is saying you're going to end up in the, in that lowest place. It's not it's not going to be good for you. How many of you have heard of Muhammad Ali? Muhammad Ali was a, a famous boxer, and if you have ever seen any clips of him, or you know, I grew up with watching him, he was a very brash and braggadocious type of personality, and he loved to always declare that he was the greatest. And no matter what conversation, it wasn't just around boxing, he was always telling everybody how he was the greatest. And I remember a time that there was a story where he boarded a plane, and sitting in his seat... Uh, the flight attendant comes down the aisle and, and she says to him, Mr. Ali, I, I, I need you to buckle your seatbelt. We can't take off until you buckled up. And Ali, in typical fashion, uh, tells her why he's the greatest and he says, uh, Superman, don't need no seatbelt. And this flight attendant was quick on the draw and she said to him, Superman, don't need no airplane. <laughs> and uh, Ali, for... Of one of the few rare instances in his life was humbled, and he smirked at her, and he buckled up so they could take off. As we look at this parable on pride, uh, none of us like to be put in that position, do we? Where we kind of get, you know, owned. We get humbled, and it's it's hard. Not only because when we when we get humbled, but often none of us want to be humble because we have this skewed view of what it means. See, a lot of times we're afraid that if we humble ourselves, it means that, that somebody's going to take advantage of us, that people are going to walk over us. I wonder if you've ever heard of a man by the name of Moses. Moses was a, a leader in the Old Testament. And I want you to listen to this description of him in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. It says, Now the man Moses was very humble. Some translations use the word meek. He was humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Now, when you hear that, is that your picture of Moses? This man who led millions out of captivity, this man who was able to overthrow Pharaoh through God's power as his, as his representative and spokesman to, to lead the people out. But it says Moses was humble. He was meek. And we hear a word like meek and we think, well, that means we're weak. Weak. But that's not what the word meek means. The actual definition is literally strength under control. Strength under control. And it was used to describe a horse where you would put a bit in its mouth. If you've ever ridden a horse, uh, you may think you're in control of the horse, but you're not. I worked at a ranch camp one summer in Cimarron, New Mexico. And, and they gave me this horse called Big Red because I was the biggest guy there. And they said, you get Big Red. And Big Red liked to jump little uh, cavernish, you know, bar ditches and things. And so he would run full speed at this, and I would be riding him, and I would pull back on the reins. Sometimes I would pull back so hard he's looking at me while we're running full speed toward this culvert. And, and he's looking at me like, no, I'm not going to stop. So I learned to just let him go because I wanted him to see where we were going, right? But he, he, was, he had all this power. And and there were times it was strength under control, I could control him, but other times, you know, it, it, it just let loose. Now Moses, you'll remember, was not always a guy who had strength under control. When he was in Pharaoh's house, we're told how he lost his anger when he saw a Hebrew slave being beaten and he killed the Egyptian. And then he had to flee from Egypt. He was sent out into the wilderness and he became a shepherd for 40 years. God had to work on him. God had to you know, rub those rough edges off. He had to change who Moses was. And when he came back as God's representative, he was a meek and humble man. All the power was there, but it was strength under control. Another worry we have when it comes to humility is we think, well, if I don't promote myself, then who will? Have you ever had that fear? You're like, if I don't toot my own horn, if I'm not the guy letting everybody know what I'm doing, if I'm not the girl who's, who's putting out the portfolio and telling everybody how I was responsible for that success, then, then we're going to be left behind. The world says if, if you want to climb higher and be somebody, you have to self-promote. You have to, you have to claw your way to the top. You have to fight. You have to step on other people, destroy others in order to build your own career. But according to the world, the way, the way up is up. But in the Bible, God turns that whole process upside down, and he says the way up is down. James 4.10 tells us, Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. First Peter 5.6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now we're talking about humility, so I want to make sure you understand how I'm defining humility. Humility isn't about where you devalue who you are or where you put on a a false facade and you you pretend to be this humble person where you're not. Humility is not about looking at yourself like you're worthless or a dirt. That's called self-deprecation. The true measure of humility, the best way for you to humble yourself, is not to stoop lower than you are. Rather, it's to look up at something greater than you. And as you look at that standard that's greater than you, the true measure of your smallness will be seen in the greatness of the example. Who is the greatest example of humility? Jesus Christ. And so as we look at Christ, the Bible tells us that that our goal is to, to grow to the full measure of the stature of Christ. And as we look up at him and who he is, it will help us in order to truly be humble. Now, last week, we talked about the kingdom of God and how those who live for the Lord will have rewards when we co-reign with Christ. And there's an example related to the kingdom and what we're talking about today, uh, being humble, found in Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, there were two of Jesus' disciples who were the sons of Zebedee. And their mother comes to Jesus in Matthew 20, 21. And the mom says to Christ, command it in your kingdom. These two sons of mine, these disciples of yours, may sit one at your right hand and one at your left. And Jesus replied, you do not know what you are asking. And then turning to her sons, Jesus said, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, we are, we're able. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right hand and on my left. This is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my father. Now, I love uh, Matthew twenty twenty four because it says, in hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers. Remember, there's the 12 disciples who were there. Uh, mom walks in, and she calls shotgun for the sons, right? She says, Jesus, in your kingdom, you give my boys the front seat. And these other guys are mad because they didn't call shotgun first, right? But Jesus called them to himself, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercised authority over them. It is not this way among you. It is not to be this way among us as brothers and sisters in Christ, he's telling us. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the world says greatness is defined by power, position, possessions, the stuff that you get. And what Jesus says is greatness is defined by sacrifice and service. It's not what you get, it's what you give. It's what you give of your your time, your talents, your resources as you sacrifice and serve others. Now, let me make sure you understand something clear here. I'm not telling you that if you're ever given a promotion, or if you're ever given honor because you were the the you know salesman of the, of the month or the year, or you're in the military and you move up a rank, or you're in a place where somebody gives you honor, uh, that you're just oh no 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 I can't have that. That's not what this is saying. What it's telling you is do not seek this out. Do not step on others to get it. We're not to grab the places of glory, but we're to look at the true measure of greatness. God sent Jesus Christ, and as we live for him, we're to let God uh, worry about whether or not we get those places of power, whether or not we get those, those positions or those possessions. There was a conductor, a great conductor by the name of Leonard Bernstein, and he was asked which instrument was the most difficult to play. Now, here at Wayside, we have a number of musicians who are part of the San Antonio Symphony. So we have some very skilled, uh, great musicians. And if you're one of those people who has a musical talent, I don't. I play the radio. That's the extent of my (laughs) musical ability. But if you're somebody who's saying, well, gosh, what is the hardest instrument to play? Maybe you're thinking, well, I haven't mastered this or mastered that. But this is how this conductor responded. He said, the most difficult instrument to play is the second fiddle. He says, I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone to play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And he says, if we have no second fiddle, then we have no harmony. Are you a person who is content to play second fiddle? To maybe be the -the behind-the-scenes person? To be in the second chair that makes others successful? Or do you always have to have the place on the platform? Do you always have to have the spotlight? There's a woman by the name of Corey Tin Boom. Uh, she was a famous missionary. Her, her family uh, hid Jews during the Holocaust, and eventually they were uh, discovered for what they were doing. They were taken to the prison camps themselves during the Holocaust. And much of the Tin Boom family died uh, while in these prisons. If you've seen the, or read the book or seen the movie The Hiding Place, it's about the Tin Boom family. And Corrie, after the war, would, went around speaking about forgiveness. Forgiving the, the Germans, forgiving the enemies, others. And she became very famous and was a speaker in high demand. And, and one time somebody asked her if it was hard to remain humble. And I love the response she gave. Corrie ten Boom said, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as he descended the Mount of Olives and his people were throwing their garments and palm branches on the road and and shouting out praises uh, to Jesus. She said, do you think for any moment the donkey thought the praises were for him? She said, if I can be the donkey on which my master rides, I give him all the glory. Are you content to be the donkey? To be the donkey on which Jesus rides? to use your life for his glory and not your own. Now, remember, humility is not about seeing yourself as dirt and a worthless worm. Humility is not about a removal of your importance. Rather, it's an understanding of what really makes you important. And God loves you not because of how great you are, because of what company you've built, because of what your portfolio looks like. God loves us, Romans 5.8 says, that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. God thought you were so important that he sent his son Jesus to go to the cross and die for you. While you and me were at our worst, while we were sinners, while we were in rebellion, while we were far from God. That is what defines your value and importance. God thought you were worth dying for. If you had been the only man or woman who had ever lived, Jesus would have come and died for you. He loved you that much. And that's what defines our importance. So many times we worry about what others think about us and we let them define whether we're important or lovable. And God says, look to the cross and don't forget what I thought of you. Now, as those to whom God died for, we need to die to ourselves. We need to become less self-centered. We need to become more like Christ-centered disciples. Humility is not where we think of ourselves less. It's, I mean, humility is not thinking less of ourselves, rather it is thinking of ourselves less. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, it is thinking of ourselves less. Pride is the attitude that says, I'm the center of my universe, and friends, if that's your world, it's a pretty small world, isn't it? Are you the center of your universe? Pride is about self-promotion, which will ultimately lead to demotion, Proverbs 16, 18 tells us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. There's a story told about a, a a pond that was drying up. And in this pond, there were some ducks and there was this turtle and, and the, the ducks and turtle were good friends. And, and as, as the water was getting less and less, the, the duck said to the turtle, we we've got to move on and find some, some more water somewhere. This is going to dry up eventually. And they said, we really wish we could take you with us. And the turtle said, well, I've I've got an idea. I know how you can do that. He said, let's get a strong stick. And if each of you ducks put one end in in the bill of of your mouths, and I'm going to come and I'm going to clamp down on the center, you can take off and take me with you to the next pond. And the ducks thought about it and said, well, it may be hard, but let's try And so they got a stick, they clamped onto it, the turtle got in the center and clamped on and the ducks with all their might took off and they were able to lift off with this turtle. And as they're flying along over some fields, there were a couple of farmers there talking and they looked up and they said, well, look at that. I've never seen that before. Here's two ducks flying, a stick and a turtle hanging down the middle of the stick. And one of the farmers said to the other, well, that's that's brilliant. I wonder who the genius is who came up with that idea. And, and, you know, one of the other farmers said, well, I bet it was one of those ducks. Now, the turtle hearing this was mad that the ducks were getting credit for his brilliant idea. And so he opened his mouth and he said, I did it. Pride comes before the fall as this (laughs) turtle comes crashing down. Now, the greatest warning about the danger of pride and the fall that it causes is found in in Isaiah chapter 14. Because in Isaiah 14, we're told that that Satan fell because of pride. Now, when I say the word Satan or the devil, you probably, some people immediately get this picture of the devil, deviled ham can, right? The the Underwood can that has this red pitchforked, you know, horn guy. And we say, well, that's what the devil looks like. But as you read through the Bible, the devil was created in beauty, he was called the covering cherub. He literally had the highest place in the angelic order. And, and he fell because he wanted to take the place of God on the throne, which is what's talked about in Isaiah fourteen twelve through 15. There God says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. He tries to climb, climb, climb. And God says, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. In contrast to Satan, who wanted God's place, we find God's son who had that place, that throne in heaven in Philippians chapter 2. And it says he was willing to set that aside in order to take our place, dying on a cross Philippians 2, 3 through 11 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself. God took on flesh and blood. The creator became a part of the creation. He took on the limitations of time and space like we know it. He walked among the earth. He, he was a baby who had to have his diapers changed. He went through the muck and mire of this world. He suffered uh, sleeplessness and hunger, all the things we read about in the Bible. And if that was not humility enough, it says that he lowered himself, taking the place of a servant. And he lowered himself to the lowest place, ultimately taking the place of a criminal on a cross, dying the worst possible death, the lowest uh, death that could be died for us. And you will remember that as he was at the Last Supper, as he was preparing to go to the cross to die, it says he got up from a meal. Remember what the meals look like? You're laying there. And we're told that the disciples all came in and because they all thought more of themselves than than they should have, they said, well, I'm not taking the place of the servant. Normally, the lowest slave would meet you at the door and he would be girded with a towel and he would wash your feet in a basin and dry it with the towel that he was wearing. But these guys all said, I'm too important for that. And so as they took their their place sardine style, these stinky feet were, were behind the heads of the other. That's a real appetizing meal taking place, right? And it says that Jesus, as he looked around the table and saw this, he got up, he took off his robe, he girded himself with a towel, he took a basin, and he went and he washed the feet of each of the disciples. And he told him uh, when he was done, he said, if I, if you call me Lord and master, which you're right to do because I'm that, he said, if I was willing to do that for you, you should be doing this for one another. And as he humbled himself, taking that place of a servant, remember, men and women, that that's when he knew he was about to go to the cross and humble himself to that last level, dying a criminal's death for us. But that wasn't the end because while the world said he went down, 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 literally into the depths of the ground, being buried in a tomb, the scriptures tell us three days later he rose from the dead. He walked the earth for 40 days and then he was elevated as he ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God the Father and he's waiting to return at his second coming as we talked about last week. The world says the way up is up and Jesus said the way up is to come down and at the right time God will exalt you and he's exalted Jesus not just to that highest throne in heaven but he says he's been given the name that is above all names. Every tongue is going to confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee is going to bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. As First Peter 5, 6 tells us, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now, as we're talking about all this, I know there are probably some people sitting out here right now saying, well, Roger, this is great. That stuff works in church. But you don't live in my world. I live in the real world. I'm going to walk out of here and I'm going to go back into uh, the construction business where I work. I'm going to be at the sales floor of that that company that I work. I'm going to be in that C-suite where I am. And if, if I try to go down to get up, people are going to trample me. They're going to walk on me. We already talked about that, didn't we? But you're saying, yeah, but this stuff doesn't work in the world. Can I tell you something? You're wrong. And I know you're wrong because hard data tells me you're wrong. If you want to set aside the Bible and everything the Bible says, and you want to look at what the business world says, every data point says that the way down is really the way up. There are studies from Harvard and Yale that have gone in and looked at companies and said, what are the most successful companies there are business books you can read like Level 5 Leadership or Good to Great. You can read gurus like Jim Collins or Patrick Lencioni, these guys who study the marketplace and say, what are the most successful companies? What are the places that are, that are knocking it out of the park? And you know what they find? They find that everything we're talking about today, where you take up the towel and you serve others, is how these companies beat the competition. Not just by a little, they crush the competition. The way up is down. The way down is up. Let me give you another example. This is a picture you might recognize the people in it. That's uh, Colonel Sanders on the right from Kentucky Fried Chicken, and that's a younger Dave Thomas of uh, Wendy's fame. Now, what you may not know is that Dave Thomas... Uh, made his his initial fortune in the Kentucky Fried Chicken Enterprise. He was actually a reason for the success of KFC where it became this this powerhouse corporation. And so Dave Thomas worked for KFC. He helped develop and and grow KFC. He sold off the franchises he had, and he took the money that he did to found Wendy's, which is the, the third most successful fast food company in history. And he wrote a biography, an autobiography called Well Done, and there's a play on words there, not just uh, well done like the food you cook, but also well done, good and faithful servant. And so his biography is fully titled Well Done, The Common Guy's Guide to Everyday Success. And in it, he says, I got my MBA before my GED. So if you don't know anything about Dave Thomas's story, he was an orphan, he was adopted, Uh, He worked his way um, at a very early age. He had to to work in order just to survive. So he never finished high school. And uh, after he became successful, he actually went back to school at the age of 61 and earned his GED. And the reason he did that is he said, I know I'm an example to many. And people point to me and say, well, see, Dave never finished high school. You don't need to do that. And he wanted people to know the value of education, so he finished his high school degree at the age of 61. Now, ironically, he was voted when he graduated as the most likely to succeed by his class. (laughs) I think he already proved that. So Dave Thomas says, I have a photograph in my MBA graduation outfit. He says it's a snazzy knee-length work apron. And if you ever saw the corporate reports from Wendy's, it would feature him uh, holding a mop and a bucket. You know, he had a a mop and bucket pail in the picture with him. And that wasn't just some photo opportunity. That was actually how Dave Thomas lived his life. He demonstrated that humble leadership style that he was willing to mop the floors and do the things that are needed. When he talks about his MBA degree that he had, it doesn't stand for a, a Master's of Business Administration, as you think. It stands for a mop bucket attitude. And that was the way he lived his life. It was the way he ran his company. And if you go into Wendy's, many of them still have up on the wall, we still do at Dave's Way. He passed away in 2002. And so he was one of these, as Jim Collins would say, a level five leader. He was a, he, he was as, um, a, a good to great leader that put others first and recognized you don't get ahead by crushing others. You don't get ahead by using your people up and throwing them away. You serve them. Um, you know, I, there's a saying that if people work for you, you work for them. And any of you who own companies or are in leadership know that. Uh, you always take care of the other uh, people in your organization first. And so this is what we're talking about today. In Matthew twenty-five forty, Jesus Christ tells us, Truly I say to you that the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it for me. So rather than being those who promote ourselves, rather than being those who, who give to get, we should live according to the acronym of J-O-Y, joy. And what that stands for is Jesus, others, and you. Instead of doing it the world's way where it says you put yourself at the top, you promote yourself, you you take care of yourself first. If we put Jesus first, and as we serve others, and we put ourselves last, the Bible is very clear that the last shall be first. So if we live this way, we'll find uh, not only success according to the world's standards, ultimately, but we'll also find more joy in our life we're able to look at ourselves in the mirror and 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 not feel bad about who we are and the way that we are out in the world so as we leave today i want you to think about your own life i want to ask yourself are you truly a member of the order of the towel are you a person who does as jesus christ did and humbles yourself and serves others and if you're not ask god to show you ways that you can change the way that you're living your life will you join me please as we close in prayer Lord God, we thank you for your word. Your word that reminds us of who we are. Men and women, boys and girls of great value. We are not defined, Lord, by the world's standard of success of power, position, or possessions. We're defined by how valuable you said we were. Valuable enough to leave your throne in heaven to come to earth and die for us in order to invite us into your family, to give us the opportunity to become a son or daughter of yours as we turn from our sins into you, Jesus, as our Savior. And, Father, as those who have found your Son, those who have accepted your gift of grace and new life, Father, would we be those who are willing to follow the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Would we set aside our robes? Would we take up a towel and serve one another? We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ.